Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and this week on the podcast, rather than one last guest rounding out our March 2023 Her Stories series, I went into our archives with a specific goal of putting together a salon of sorts about craft. I think of craft as how vocation, location, persistence, and passion fulfill us. According to Merriam-Webster, it is skill in planning, making, or executing. I always ask this question because I feel it allows my guests to share more than what they do on a day-to-day basis for economic returns, i.e. work, and gets closer to the heart of who they are and how they go about manifesting a new world. So this week, we're visiting with Jamaican-American Nadia Swabi, a Black feminist researcher, writer, and curator based in London about art, archives, and freedom dreams. Filipino, Jamaican-American, Z. Clark, an author, mindfulness practitioner, and racial healing professional about healing and breathing. <sighs> Ghanaian Afro-German, Akuyenka, a thought leader in international development on being a polyglot professor, policy advisor, and art patron. Ghanaian Brit, Esther Arma, an author, journalist, and entrepreneur on storytelling for structural change. Nigerian Sarah Adeyinka, a humanitarian researcher and author on humanitarian co-creating. And Detroit native Dorika Blackman, an inclusion innovator, speaker, and spiritual activist about uncommon conversations. First up, Nadia Swabi. What's my craft? Yeah, I think at the heart of my work is very much driven from this perspective of being a Black woman from a migrant and working class background. And it's structured my approach to being a Black feminist and the way in which I view feminism as very much being about Black women's subjectivity, about advocating for Black women's right to live like livable and happy future and present lives. And so that is a driving force behind my craft in the sense that it drives the kind of work that I do as a researcher. I have done archival and ethnographic work around Black feminist organizing in Britain, in the United States. It's also very much international in scope in the sense of, you know, as you mentioned, I'm working on a biography about Amy Ashford Garvey, who was a Pan-African woman who was married to Marcus Garvey. She was from Jamaica. You know, she was born in Jamaica. She lived in the United States. She lived in England. She spent time in West Africa. So that very much structures, I think, the way I think about my craft as well when I talk about being kind of thinking about myself in a broader diasporic sense. So that structures my research, the things I write about. I write speculative writing, practice-based, like performance pieces that are sort of drawn from my response to different archives, Black women's archives that I work with. And also as a curator, I do live programs and also increasingly trying to do like curating stuff around performance and curating kind of educational programs that give people different entry points into what I think of as Black feminist knowledge production, which emerges not only in like the academic context, but also in the form of Black women's poetry and Black women's literature and Black women's performance and art. So really like the thing that drives my curatorial work, and, and I think my work as a researcher and a writer, is thinking about how Black women's very living advances this idea of like Black feminism as a, as a body of scholarship and as a way of being and living in the world. So yeah, that's what I would say is my craft. Mm, mm. <laughs> it's always so nice to talk to 
I want to say academics, because you're you're an academic, but you're also in the practical world. But you've so succinctly, you know, decided and put in place your thought process around and being very deliberate about the work that you're doing and how you intend to impact the lives of others. And so in coming to that, as a young woman before moving, you know, abroad, how did you determine that this was what you, the direction that you wanted to mm. go into? Like, where where were the roots of that? How did you how did you get mm. to that? That's point? such an interesting question, because I think we don't often think about like our genealogy or like our kind of personal background mm. in the way that you're asking as like, especially as academics, as being so central to the research and the work that we do. And I think as Black women academics, oftentimes you come to a point where you're sort of challenged on whether or not your research is valuable because it can be, especially if you do work on Black women or Black feminism, because people are like, well, is that not just looking at the personal? How is that academic work? How is that research work? Like, how is that really, you know? But for Mm -hmm. me, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. the things that have structured my path is very much like, you know, growing up in a single parent migrant working class home, the kinds of things that my mom, the limited resources that my mom had and the way she exposed me to things as a result of that, because libraries were free. There were always activities happening at the library, spending time with books, borrowing books from the library was such a critical and important pastime that my mom could give to us with having limited resources. So reading, you know, the things that really drew, inspired me and framed my thinking was like early engagements with the work of Toni Morrison, with Alice Walker, with Jamaica Kincaid. Like it was very much literature and the writing Mm -hmm. of Black women that gave me a way of thinking about other experiences that were not my own, but that were very much connected to my lived reality and understanding of myself as a Black woman and as as a young person. And then, you know, that kind of builds up to me that sort of being in the background of a broader interest in studying and understanding the experiences of other Black women, such that by the time I was studying anthropology as a BA student at Rollins College, I was particularly interested in looking at the way that Jamaican-Americans and Jamaican-American women in particular engaged in kinds of code switching because I grew up with, you know, hearing my mom speak one way in the home. And if she answers the house phone, she might her, her just her mm-hmm. whole way of speaking or calling my mom at work. No, my mom spoke Pacho in a certain type of way of speaking at home and then calling my mom at work and hearing her speak to me and then talk to her colleagues in a different type of accent. And so I really had this sense that, you know, black women are mm-hmm. always, I think people who are migrants in general are engaged in a kind of code switching and it's kind of sense of, you know, thinking of W.E.B. Du Bois' idea of double consciousness, where, you know, you like have a recognition that there are like multiple versions of yourself that you're drawing on at any moment. So by the time I am a BA student and I'm reading some of this stuff that has a theoretical grounding, I'm like, this is my life. It's just the way that I've grown up. So it mm-hmm. meant that I wanted to mm-hmm. like think about my culture and think about my background as a space that was worthy of academic investigation. So, you know, my first kind of studies was around being a Jamaican, being a migrant, and the way in which we engage in different forms of code switching and like how we navigate our kind of cultural in-betweenness. And then that sort of picked up that by the time I was a master's student, I had grown up hearing so much about Garveyism and Marcus Garvey and as being a national hero. And I just thought, oh, it'd be interesting to like read about like women in the Garvey movement, you know, like to, to write my dissertation on like, just thought, oh, that's the thing I could research a little bit more about, like women in the Garvey movement. And it was through reading more about those books that I learned about Marcus Garvey's first wife, who's not the one that is largely recognized. You get Hugh Hugh Martin more much, much more about Amy Jacques Garvey, that I like wound up hearing about her life and her history and her story. And like it very much, you know, all the things that she went through, the way in which she was a leader of the Pan-African movement, the fact that they were, her and Marcus Garvey divorced and separated, like 
the journeys and the travels that she went on, it became, it opened up me to thinking about other opportunities I might have for my life as well. London became something that was available to me, even though I had cousins who lived in London, it became available to me because of my research on Amy Ashford Garvey. I had to come to London to do research in an Mm. archive on her life because she spent time living in the UK. And it was when I came here that I started, I looked around and thought, oh, like London could be a place for me as well. And I then decided to apply for a PhD to study in London. And I was particularly interested at that point in thinking about the Black migrant women who would have migrated or come to the UK at a time that my mom would have migrated to the United States and understanding the conditions and the context of their life as being a part of the diaspora that I'm a part of. So that informed the PhD research that I did. And I wound up doing work around Black women's organizing in the UK from like, you know, the 1970s to the present. And it was about also wanting to be a part of a Black feminist movement that was long-standing in the UK, but also wanting to be a part of the different activist and community organizing that was happening at the time. So that was very much, you know, framed in my PhD. If you see what I'm saying, it all sort of built on like a kind of very personal, mm-hmm. you know, very personal trajectory. And then now I have the privilege to be in a space where I'm getting to return to that early research I did on Amy Ashford Garvey to write a book about her. And I think this book very much reflects both her archive and her story, but also my work as a researcher and trying to tell her story and the places it's taken to me. So there's a bit that's historical and then there's a part that's autoethnographic. As you know, Florence, when we met, I was sort of in Ghana doing Mm -hmm. a bit of research on Amy Ashford Garvey's time, you know, the time that she spent living there. Mm -hmm. So the book is also about the places that I went to, to find out stories about her, because I think that is just as important to the research and to the excavation of her story about like the lengths that one has to go through to, in order to tell the story about a woman like her, who's, life is sort of at the margins of history, but it's so central to Black diaspora study, to Pan-African study. To tell a story about her is to tell a story about so many things that frame my life as a Black woman, that it feels like weaving in and out between my journey as a researcher, the places I've had to go to to tell her story, and also talking about the places she had to go to as a Black woman to be the activist that she was. It become deeply interconnected. So for me, I think, you know, you often hear feminists talk about the personal being political, and I think that very much resonates with the way that I live about like Mm -hmm. the personal being political and the personal being professional, like very much the work that I do is entangled with the, like my broader freedom dreams as a black woman. You know, I often say person, I want to say people, I want to work as fully who I am. Anything that pays me, I want it to be based on who I am. I don't want to have to fit into a box. I don't want to have to be different than who I am. I want to speak in the way that I speak, I don't want to have to fit into a framework of what it means to be professional. Like I jokingly say, I want to be just a professional black woman. That's just me coming in embodied who I am at all times. And I feel fortunate to be in this place right now where I can, yes, have jobs in institutions, but I can also be in them, but not of them and really focus on the work that I'm doing to create. I mean, frankly, I I hope that my work is creating a kind of broader, safer, more creative and imaginative world for other black women like myself. But I'm hoping that I'm doing that through my research by you know, drawing out the stories of Black women whose lives have been at the margin, but who are so central to the way that we live today. My craft is teaching mindfulness and breath work to people of color and more specifically to Black people so that we can heal from racism and the challenges that race presents in this country and in the world. I felt for the majority of my career that I was sprinting on a treadmill and not going anywhere. Mm. So I was working hard, working hard, putting in all those hours on the weekends. That was not inspiration. Even my desire to rise up in the ranks of corporate America was not inspiration. It always scarcity, even in times when I don't, you know, that I 
I'm not like, I'm not homeless. Right. Mm -hmm. But like scarcity and experiences of scarcity as a child led me to just always have this scarcity mentality. And that's why I was sprinting as fast as possible, even when sometimes I didn't need to. So mm-hmm. when did when did it become inspiration? I would say that I sprinted so fast and worked so hard that I broke myself. I was broken. Mm-hmm. Burnout is real. I, I wrote an article on uh, how to avoid BIPOC burnout because when you know, we all know if you're black in the workplace, you got to ru- you got to work twice as hard as anybody else just to be treated the same way. And so I and and it also kind of tied to my self worth. I was tying how how I was treated, what my title was at work, what my compensation was with my self-worth. And that was not helpful. That just added more stress. So burnout happened and I needed to take a pause in my career. And that's when I went to India. Mm. So I I had already been doing yoga. I'd already been meditating a little bit, but I needed to dig deeper into these practices to make myself feel better. So what happened is I took a couple of years off. I went to India. Uh, I did my yoga teacher training. I became a sound healer with Tibetan singing bowls. I was in Peru with the shaman. I was traveling around the Southwest, getting exposure to indigenous practices. And I will say that in the process of healing myself, when I was starting to feel better, I was like, I didn't even know that life could feel this good because Mm -hmm. my baseline was always struggle from from when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, wait, if I can feel this good after feeling so bad, that's when the inspiration came. Then I was like, other people need to feel this good. Like Mm -hmm. if I can help other people feel this way in a world that is tough, let's just be honest, that's, that's the inspiration. And that's when I realized that this is my... This is why I'm here. This is why I'm on this planet and particularly to help black people because the struggle not only is real, but has been real for generations. So so I'll say it all started with me trying to help myself because I was not okay. Mm -hmm. When I learned tools that helped me and I was like, not only am I okay, I'm great. That's when I was like, oh, oh, what am I doing? Spending my hours and weekends and evenings working for, you know, in quotes, the man, right? Trying to get some title that like uh, culture, American society says is uh, success. And I'm like, no, no, success for me means that people feel better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amen to that. I heard that. So um, tell us more about India. Where did you go? I've I've been and, you know, I went to Goa similarly just, you know, for healing and, and the yoga lifestyle is is something that I embrace. And so tell us about your India. Tell us how you designed that journey and how that catalyzed you into the sound and, and yoga healing. Yeah. I mean, I'll start with why I went to India. Mm-hmm. I had been practicing yoga. It sounds like you also practice yoga for a long time. Almost all of my yoga teachers were white women. I was living in San Francisco, so perhaps that was representative of the population. I mean, in Oakland, obviously there are black teachers, but I was living in the city of San Francisco, so it just was a little bit more of a commute. And I was tired of hearing white women mm. chant in Sanskrit. It there was something, there was a gap there. There was a I could not receive whatever it was they were giving because there was a lack of authenticity and like trueness in in the teachings even though there you can i believe that you can learn from everybody including the white women yoga teachers and there's one in particular that i love to this day and i still go to her classes online because she's amazing Mm -hmm. that said 
I wanted to learn from the source. I felt, you know, that game of telephone that you play when you're little, mm-hmm. it's like somebody, tells somebody, tells somebody, somebody, and by the time you get there, it's different. Right. That's what I felt like with yoga. And I was like, you know what? Let me just squash all this noise. Let me, I want to learn from the source. And that's why I went to India. So I did a yoga teacher training in an area called Kerala. Mm-hmm. It is in the south of India. Um, I know you were in Goa. I've also been to Goa. Very fun place. Although I'm like, I'm trying to imagine yoga and go because it felt very party. Goa felt very. We were on the whole. We were on the whole other side. Okay. <laughs> so like we okay. had to commute to the party side. <laughs> yes. And the program that I did was all the basic things that you would do in a yoga teacher training. But in addition to that, added to that was Ayurveda. So I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with Ayurveda. Yep. That was um, part of my experience. Of yours as well. Mm-hmm. For, for those that are not familiar with Ayurveda, um, it is an ancient form of, of healing. In India, you might not go to a Western doctor. You might go to an Ayurvedic doctor and you will get treated based on on you specifically. So while in Western medicine, it's like, got a headache? All right, everybody take Advil. And oh, by the way, we're going to charge you for the uh, the side effects that are going to happen. We're going to actually sell you more medicine um, because it's a one-size-fits-all treatment. Mm-hmm. And Ayurveda, it's based on you and what you are composed of and the elements. And so what you eat, the exercise that you do, and, and all the things are based on that. So um, I was very interested in Ayurveda. I was interested in holistic healing because as I mentioned, the burnout that happened was also physical. And I was having physical ailments just as, you know, in, a, in addition to all the mental and emotional stuff, because, you know, chronic stress actually causes all sorts of things that you wouldn't think about heart disease, cancer, diabetes, yes. everything. And I was not okay. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, what should I be eating? Again, this was all to like heal myself. But you know, what was crazy about India and I had been before I had been during business school. I went on like a, they call them like treks and the business school students all go and meet up with the business leaders and sometimes political leaders. And it's like a very structured tour, very different than what I did on this trip. But I, I will say that when you land in a place like Delhi, right, or Mumbai, it's stressful. Like it's, it's, if you're just not used to uh, places that have as large of a population and to be so densely populated. So just the the amount of people in one place, along with the, um, the poverty that you just can't help but seeing if you go anywhere, even if you're in a car with a driver, like mm-hmm. you look outside the window and you see extreme poverty. At first I was like, how is this the place that yoga was, credo and meditation and all these things? I was like, and then I realized, I was like, oh, if life is this crazy, you need something to maintain your sense of calm, right? And I was like, oh, okay, I, I get it. I get it. I, I got to know. I got to know the secrets. So so that's a, that was my India experience. I, I was in a structured program. I also wandered around a little bit by myself. And, um, and then the sound healing, um, I got into sound healing because I got a treatment. Uh, they put the Tibetan singing bowls on your body mm-hmm. and you feel the vibrations. And I went some, I went somewhere. I, I was like, I experienced such a profound level of peace, like this feeling, like if I thought that like life was just struggle, like baseline, you know, my shoulders, um, they just, they naturally come up to my ears. Like ever since I was little, like that's just where I hold stress, like just always. 
And so that's my base. That's just like regular. So to go to this thing and have these vibrations, not only did my shoulders come down, but my entire body, it felt like I was floating, but then like mentally, emotionally, I was in some dream place of complete comfort, love, coexistence, oneness. It was so magical. And I was like, well, I got to learn more about this. Also, I play violin. I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, you know, and I've been learning all these different healing tools, you know, Reiki and all sorts of things, but the sound that the fact that you could heal for me, music has been about expressing emotions and communication. Like to me, the violin is my voice. So to be able to heal, to mm -hmm. heal with sound was like, Oh, oh, okay. And then to be able to get to that, that place that I experienced, I was like, oh, I need to be able to offer this to others. I have many crafts. So I consider myself to be a social entrepreneur, kind mm -hmm. of similar to you, actually. Mm -hmm. So even though I have a kind of a set training as an as a social epidemiologist, a social scientist, I've really used my scientific training to expand into areas of, you know, social impact. So whether that be, you know, social impact related to health and well-being or also social impact. Uh, a lot of work I'm doing now is in the visual arts and really trying to, you know, strengthen the art sector and making sure more people of color, especially uh, people of African descent, are recognized in the art world. I made a decision that I wanted to do a PhD about HIV prevention uh, of young people living in Portugal. Mm. And this was at the beginning of the 2000s when HIV was still a very big issue. And mm -hmm. Brazil, for some reason, was one of the countries that had a very strong national program and really became a limelight in the international kind of arena for their program of HIV prevention. I didn't know that. I just looked at the population dynamics of Brazil and I thought, oh, my God, things are going to explode here. There's such a huge, actually 50 percent of Brazilian population is of African descent, which many exactly. people don't know. Mm -hmm. So I was like, this is somewhere I want to be. I mean, I also knew I wanted to work on the African continent, but I wanted to have one standpoint, like I wanted to have knowledge elsewhere. And so basically I had met uh, when, when I was living in the U.S. We were fortunate to meet a lot of international young people. And so we had very, very good friends that were from Brazil. And so I was like, okay, I want to go there. I want to learn more about this country that I've seen so much about. And so I went to Brazil. I learned the language. I ended up doing my PhD in Brazil and collecting data. I went into a very famous kind of detention center system. You could call it a youth prison. It's notorious worldwide called Febeng, and I did my PhD there, which gave me a lot of street cred. So for people <laughs> that have been to Brazil and that have been to Sao Paulo and know about Febeng, people are like, wow, respect. And so that gave me an understanding of, you know, Portuguese kind of colonies or like what had come out of a Portuguese colony. Mm -hmm. And so Portuguese became my third language. It was even stronger than my French. And it stayed with me. I mean, my experience in Brazil was bittersweet. It wasn't all glamorous and fun. I saw some really, you know, difficult things and also the way I was treated. It was an, a fascinating experience to come out of that bubble in Germany where I lived as an Afro-German was more or less well integrated, but I never had really bad discrimination experiences. And then I went to Portugal 
And there I was kind of classed because of my color, which I had never experienced before. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they would call me Morena, which means like brown woman. But mm-hmm. basically you can switch social classes based on either how light you are or how educated you are. And so mm-hmm. even though I was Morena, I was brown girl, but I was well educated and I spoke English. So I kind of like got that social lift. But at the same time, people didn't know who I was and I wasn't there with my family. And so oftentimes people would assume that I was a nanny or a maid Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. um, I had obviously a lot of European friends. So even if I went to, you know, some well-to-do restaurants and like nightclubs, people even thought I might be, you know, a prostitute. prostitute, yeah. And Mm -hmm. that had never happened to me before. And Mm -hmm. it was a real shock. So it was kind of eye-opening experience, leaving that kind of nest of, you know, family and going into the world and really realizing, wow. Being a black woman out in the world, you know, it's like, it's not what my parents taught me. You know, I was surrounded by very successful, you know, well-respected black women. And then all of a sudden I was there alone and people thought I was a maid or a prostitute. It was quite a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, okay, so that was Brazil. And so I've, you know, always been, I've been a Portuguese speaker since then. And then, you know, I did all my travels. I, you know, lived in Asia and then I came back to Europe. And I actually fell in love with Angolan Portuguese filmmaker. Okay. So that was in 2018. Okay. So with him, I started to rediscover Portugal again. Got it. We're no longer together, but I was in, I'm in a new relationship with another Portuguese person. So I think the language helped me in these relationships because we were able to establish kind of a bond with language. Sure. And yeah, I do feel like kind of an insider outsider here in Portugal because the language obviously plays a big part. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Very interesting. So obviously you can work anywhere. Well, that's another, that's actually a tricky question. I can work everywhere. I can work in many places because work is virtual. Yes. I'm not sure that I would be able to get a job in Portugal because I would be on the cusp. Like my, my language skills are not native, especially like the writing skills. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I could compete with locals here. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, just we have to be honest about the job market. Like it's, you know, Portugal was very badly hit by the recession in 2018. They're still just, you know, kind of picking things up. And there's just very few job opportunities here. So the people that come here come here with their own income source. already. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because I've heard people saying that they've moved to Portugal. And again, as you mentioned, it's because they have some work that is outside of Portugal, right? So they're doing something, but it's a nice place to be and it's a nice place to live and exist. So how does that economic situation kind of, so you don't have to work and you're not getting paid there, but then how does that impact your everyday life? Do you see it? Do you see like, you know, the struggle generally, or is it like any other city? No, I see the struggle. I mean, we're very fortunate. So all of us internet nomads that are living here, we live very privileged lives because Mm -hmm. we earn, you know, kind of like West earn good salaries from other countries. For example, I'm working for a social impact consultancy based out of Nairobi, but, you know, I'm earning in dollars and, you know, I'm earning at a level that is higher than it is here. You know, an Mm -hmm. average salary here is 700 euros. Mm -hmm. So I'm privileged in the sense that, you know, I have access to money. But I do see the struggle. So last year I bought my first property. I bought a property here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the process of going through the system is quite complicated. It's very bureaucratic. 
quite sexist. Mm. So I found an amazing banker and she processed my loans, but it was actually the sellers. So the former owners of the apartment who couldn't believe that a black woman on her own who is not married would be able to afford the apartment. So there was quite a bit of struggle in terms of them accepting my offer and the offer going through because they just didn't think I was a strong candidate. So that's something that I went through. And, you know, that's sort of part of the negative part of being here, that it was a struggle to assert myself as who I am as a professional woman who is successful and who has means. Mm -hmm. But it also showed me how difficult it is and how hard it must be for, you know, black Portuguese women who have not had the international exposure I had to assert themselves in this society. Wow. Yeah, that's very insightful. And and it's a story that's, that rings true in a lot of Western or European countries. And I mean, even to the extent of not just European, the US, Canada. And I would even venture to say it's potentially part of the issue here. You know, women don't get loans here in Ghana, meaning they don't get loans at the same rates. When you are single, you are not taken as seriously. And so hence you have that pressure to have a husband or show some kind of show of some other support that validates you. So hmm, the world needs an injection of us to just <laughs> move us along. That's for sure. I'm already looking at my second property. So I'm like kind of riding the wave because the reason why I ended up getting the apartment is because I was really held up by other strong women, including mm-hmm. my mom who helped me financially, my mm-hmm. banker, my lawyer was a was a woman who really fought for me when they mm-hmm. tried to kind of like take my deposit. And so mm-hmm. like I see the strength of women behind me. So I'm like, let me get my next one because then I can help somebody else eventually. Yeah. You know, like yeah. if I build my equity, um, sure. then I can help other people in more meaningful ways. To me, my craft is essentially as a storyteller. The medium by which I tell stories, the reason I tell them, the vision behind them manifests in these different ways, but fundamentally, I'm a storyteller. But then I have a definition of that as I lead a global institute. And the definition for me with storyteller is to articulate the contemporary lived experience in the context of history that centers race and gender as a strategy for the purpose of structural change so that the work that I do with emotional justice, which is a visionary framework for racial healing, I use stories manifest as projects to do that specific thing. With journalism, it's the same thing. With plays, it's the same thing. So the medium may change, but the foundational element is storytelling as a strategy to make structural change that's about the dismantling of systemic inequity, the confronting of racism, and the well-being of global Black people. So for me, it's really simple, but the manifestation is both creative right? Because for me, projects are creative curricula and they enable us to not just engage, but to connect with the intent of making change as a result of challenging, you know, narrative or our perspective, our lens on a particular, on a particular people and the way that we see the world. So that's my work. So tell us more about what inspired you to move in that direction. What are some of the key, key points that put you where you are now? Three pivotal moments in 1997. 
were really the impetus that led to me doing all this work, specifically the work of emotional justice, which I consider my life's work. It is purpose, it is passion, it is power. And three assignments in 1997 to Philadelphia, Ghana, and South Africa. Philadelphia was for the Million Woman March at Eakins mm -hmm. Oval, former site of slave auctions. Ghana was covering 40 years of independence. And South Africa was doing an interview with Desmond Tutu and meeting Steve Biko's widow and eldest son around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So they were three pivotal moments that did two things. They transformed the way that I even thought about journalism. And they led me to explore the role of the emotional when it comes to justice, activism, race and systemic inequity. And so in Ghana, covering 40 years of independence as a journalist, I learned that the 1966 coup, which had always been a story about the ending of Kwame Nkrumah's presidency and the beginning of this balance and mix of the ballot and the bullet when it came to political leadership, a story told to me by my dad, who was a former ambassador and a politician. I learned when I was covering 40 years of independence that it was actually my mother who was in the house who physically faced soldiers, who dealt with tanks rolling up to home and beating down the door and confronting her and her daughters. And that changed the lens for how I thought about the way our history is told. The broken silence of my mother made me think of the untold stories because of unbroken silences by African women. And how does that change the story of how we understand our nation, how we understand our history? So it changed the way that I thought about journalism and it changed the way that I thought about history. That was Ghana. Philadelphia was covering the Million Woman March. And I mean, literally thousands and thousands and thousands of women coming from all over the world, gathering on. Eaton. I was one. You were one of them. Oh, wow. Synergy. Yeah. Synergy. Yes. Thousands of women gathering. I went to cover it. I'd never been to Philadelphia before. Literally reached out, said to them, I'm a journalist. I'm in London. I'm a black Brit by way of Ghana. I would like to come and cover this story, but I've never been to Philadelphia before. I don't know anybody there. They did beautiful outreach, organized accommodation, welcomed me. I rolled with a crew that organized the march, got to meet the phenomenal keynote that was Winnie Mandela, and got to meet Jada Pinkett Smith, who was really helping with the organizing and the emceeing on the day. And I got to tell yeah. Winnie Mandela that I was headed to South Africa to do interviews and coverage on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And at the time, I had a whole bunch of interviews lined up with the leadership of the African National Congress, the ANC, Desmond Tutu, Oliver Tambo, Oliver Tambo's widow, all these different men of the ANC. And Winnie Mandela mm -hmm. said to me, I told her about my dad being Ghanaian and being part of the independence movement that got Kwame Nkrumah to presidency, and that he was one of the advocates who fought for the armed wing of the ANC, Mkonte Wisizwe, to get training in Ghana. So I was telling her these stories and saying, this is the connection that I have to you, to South Africa. And in this moment of gathering around these global black women, fighting for a humanity denied them by the systemic racism of America. And she said to me, my daughter, what you must do is go into the townships of South Africa and listen to the women and ask them what forgiveness looks, looks like for them. And that guidance, which I followed, taught me 
that the way that emotion had been defined was really within the confines of a systemic inequity and a whiteness. But in speaking to Black women who were navigating what it meant to be survivors of apartheid, but who had lost children, who had lost loved ones, who had lost husbands, spoke about rage, spoke about the power of rage to move them, spoke about their anger in having a forgiveness brokered without their consent, spoke about a refusal to engage this kind of emotion that did not recognize it, that what they sought was justice. And it began for me the equating of emotionality, blackness, and gender as a justice project. For us as a black people to think about the emotional and its role in being shaped by systems of inequity and brutality so that there were these fault lines around race and politics and healing and emotion within structures of inequity that meant that our emotions were actually a justice project. So those trips began the work that would culminate to building the framework of emotional justice, which I define as a visionary framework for racial healing, that would be about dismantling what I call emotional patriarchy, one of the pillars of emotional mm-hmm. justice, where a system essentially caters to, prioritizes, and centralizes the feelings of white men. They become the impetus mm-hmm. for, for policy, for power, for leadership, and that shapeshifts how we relate to each other as a people, as a global black people, as a global white people, and each other. And the dismantling of an emotional patriarchy would lead to an emotional justice that would be a healing that was very, very necessary. So really that's the journey that led to the framework that is now implemented by the institute that I lead, which is a global team here in Ghana, across the US and in the UK. Nice, nice. So you, I mean, now there's all this conversation about inclusion, you know, so we have chief inclusion officers and people like that, and you were way ahead of that, right? So you were light years ahead of that. And so now that you're seeing that this is now common vernacular, how are you seeing your work being demanded and potentially being, I don't even want to say co-opted, but how are you seeing your work entering into this now global economic landscape? It's absolutely entering it in a, a major way, specifically because our work is to interrupt the way DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, has become a multi-million, very profitable industry that hasn't mm-hmm. led to the kind of diversity or inclusion that it was actually created to do. And the reason that it hasn't right. done that is the nature of it is really designed around the comfort and the discomfort of white people. But actually, yeah, and because it's designed around that, of course it will fail because who intentionally will move to the level of discomfort that will make the kind of change that creates equity, which really then requires you to reimagine your relationship to power and to lose some of that. To share it means, in terms of whiteness, to lose something. And so the nature of its construction is problematic and cannot create equity. The power and the blessing for us is entering the space, challenging that. And in this moment where there is a huge opening up and a demand for DEI services in the wake of, of course, corona and the disproportionate impact, Black people, the horrific devastation of witnessing a murder and an execution in the killing of the murder of George Floyd, 
and the protests that followed. That opening up globally led to a much greater demand for our work and for people to be open to it in a way they were not. My background is in humanitarian aid and my focus has always been on working with vulnerable populations, whether it's been victims of sexual abuse and sexual violence or women working in prostitution who were being discriminated against. And then I transitioned to working with victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation. Mm. I also worked with Medicine Sans Frontier and the rescue ships doing rescues of migrants attempting to get into Europe via the Central Mediterranean route. And it was after working with MSF that I decided to go into the research field, into academia, because there was so much information and there was so much we were seeing and learning from that I saw the value of having the humanitarian aspect of me combined with the sort of critical thinking aspect of academia. And I feel like putting the two together would be even more effective. Mm. So that's what got me to where I am in Belgium. Okay. So you're from Nigeria in Lagos. I'll ask a bit about where exactly in Lagos. But let me ask you, how did you come to be living, working and playing exactly where you live? Because you've traveled to many countries and you've, you've mentioned your different studies. So tell us about that journey. I moved to Europe in 2012. I lived in Germany for a few years. And then from Germany, I moved to the Netherlands. I worked in the Netherlands. And that's how I got the job with Médecins Sans Frontières. And uh, I worked with them until 2016. And by the end of 2016, I already knew something else was coming up. I had another mission in 2017. And then I was just trying to figure out what do I do next? Where do I go? I still want to be plugged in to the field, but I also know it's time to do some research. I need to be able to do something with all this information, all this data that I gather I think, I mean, it might sound a bit weird, but I feel like going into academia for me was also a form of self-care. I felt like staying on the field and doing as much as I could as a person, you know, with compassion and thinking, I felt like it wasn't enough. And being able to go into academia and write in a way that we could hopefully influence policy, even if it's only a little bit, was something that I needed to do. I needed to leave the field for a while. So I started looking for research opportunities aligned with my field. And I came across the Child Move Project, which is funded by the EU. It's the project that's being led by really, really, really amazing professor Ilse Delun. And it's looking at the impact of flight experiences on accompanied refugee minors. So I applied for the project. We were streamlined to two people. The other person was chosen and not me. But then I reached out to Ilsa later and I said, if I fund myself, will you take me? Because I really want to do this research. I want to do research about Nigerians who are being trafficked. And she said, I will take you in a heartbeat. I wish we had more funding. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, I'll find some funding and I'll do it. And then she found funding for me. Nice. <laughs> brought me onto the project and I became part of the team. And so my focus then was, I said to her, I know the research is about unaccompanied minors, but if I'm going to be interviewing Nigerians on the project. If that's my aspect, I have to interview adults as well, because you have people who are trafficked as minors, but then when they're 18, you know, they're adults, but I want to hear their stories too. And so that was our deal. And she said, yeah, absolutely. So I joined the team and I started doing the research and that's how I moved to Ghent. 
Oh, okay. Interesting. So you left Nigeria in 2012. Now, was that for academics or what was the genesis of the Oh, I see what you're saying. No, I actually, I left Nigeria in 2006. Oh, okay. I moved to Ghana for six months, actually. Uh, (laughs) I really like Ghana. Ghana is very special to me. Okay. Uh, I lived in in, uh, Tema for six months. In Tema? Okay. Okay. I know. I know the place well. (laughs) I was with a Christian organization called Youth with a Mission. I did a training with them for six months. I went back home to Nigeria and knew that I wanted to continue doing humanitarian work, whatever that looked like. At the time, it was with a Christian organization, right? So I just continued working with YWAM. From there, I moved to Tanzania and then to Uganda and eventually to the South Pacific. So I rotated between Fiji and Tonga. And mm-hmm. but then I would go home in between to visit. So that was when I really started traveling, exploring, seeing the world, learning about injustices in other parts of the world. But every single time I came back to violence against women, sexual abuse, abuse of children. At some point I thought, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm supposed to work with child victims of sexual abuse. So I went on a scouting trip to Cambodia. I went to a shelter in Cambodia that works with children who were sexually abused. Two shelters, and I couldn't. After talking to the staff and just listening to them and finding out what they do, I realized that was not the, you know, I don't have the gift and the strength to work with that group. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would rather support the people who can, exactly. But working mm-hmm. with children who have been abused is not something that I, I feel strong enough to do. But when mm-hmm. it's adults, I have no problem doing it. And that was really good too. And I, I remember just thinking, you know what? It's okay to be able to say, I can't handle this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not feel like crap because I can't. It's not something I can handle, but I can give my money to support the people who are doing it. And mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, can work with adults, which you know sure. is the group that I like to work with. And I, I feel enabled to work with. And so, Yes, back and forth between the Pacific and East Africa and going home to visit in Nigeria. And then in 2012, I went to Germany for a course because at the time I was also doing my bachelor's in counseling with University of the Nations, which is a Christian organization, the Christian university that's owned by Youth with a Mission, the organization that I was working with. So I was working with them and studying at the same time. Okay. So you you were... Pioneer of this remote learning from junk. Oh, oh yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so I, and you know, it was cool because you got to take courses in different places. I took a counseling course in India, took a different one in Uganda, and I got to have, you know, different experiences of what is counseling and mm-hmm. how does counseling look in different contexts, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the things, and I'm, I'm deviating a bit, but I remember one of the things that I challenged one of my lecturers about was that Africans grieve in community. Well, Black Africans, at least I can say, we often grieve in community. When somebody dies or there is a loss, people come together and they, and that's how we process our loss. Yes. And so you cannot have a one-size-fits-all mold and say, well, that's how you guys do it. But actually, everybody needs to grieve individually because that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um and so while studying counseling, I started looking at the cultural aspects, how do different cultures grieve? What are the things in our culture that actually help me handle difficult situations today? Mm-hmm. How are some of the things that I learned as a Nigerian enabling me to thrive and to survive in here in Belgium, for example? But yeah. I'm, I'm deviating from the topic. But then I moved to, to Germany 
Uh-huh. And I was there for a few years. I worked with Youth with a Mission in Germany. And one of the projects that I helped to start was an outreach to a refugee center there. The mayor of the village had reached out saying that they could not get the Nigerian women in the camp to basically follow any of the programs that they had. They had swimming lessons for their children. They had German classes. They gave them food stuff and groceries and they didn't like it. And he was frustrated. They didn't know what to do. So I said, oh, I'll, I'll do it. I'll go talk to them. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I didn't know there was any such thing as a cultural mediator at the time. Mm. So that's what I was doing really was mediating between the cultures. And so my colleagues and I went there, met with the mayor, had a talk with him. And I remember in the conversation, he said, well, you're Nigerian, you know, you should talk to them. Maybe they'll listen to you. And I was like, uh, okay. So I went and met with the women, you know, but, mm-hmm. and it was basically a cultural clash. Yeah. That's all it was. It yeah. was, we don't want our children to go in the water because they could drown. Why yeah. should we have them go swim in this place? Who's going to be mm-hmm. watching them? You know, mm-hmm. um, we don't want the groceries because we don't bake. They're giving us all this flour. What are we supposed to do with it? Mm. They, we just need eggs. We need, you know, they can give us vouchers for the African store or they can give us the money and we'll buy it ourselves. Yeah. But they're giving us all this food, butter and all these things that we don't use. So we end up throwing it away. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was just those things. It was a communication issue. Yeah. 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 Very basic. Very, you very know, basic. It's, interesting. it's interesting you say that because for Europe to have been in that place, in Germany to be in that place, because I mean, there have been generations of migrants, like there's Middle right. Eastern migrants that have been there. And so for them not to have had the forethought to think, okay, we do, we're Germans, but it's kind of, and I hate to say this is a bit German because Germans are very like structured mm-hmm. in a yeah. box, everything uniform and that Absolutely. type of mentality. So for you to say that happened in Germany, I'm not surprised, right. but I am. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it's true. Like, you're right. Historically, they've had such a history, a rich history of migration. And Mm -hmm. you would then think, okay, you should, even if you say we don't want to give them cash, because we, as a policy, we don't, but then perhaps set something up, have an arrangement with one of the African grocery stores where you give them the vouchers instead, you know, something of that sort, instead of having all this food wasted. And so the women were donating the food to people who wanted them. They were and so so that's when I came in with, I remember my colleague Leona and a few other people, and we built, we just started building relationships with the women and explaining to them why they wanted their kids to learn how to swim, why the women wanted to help with them learning German, because that would be beneficial for them. In, right. For example, helping with their kids with homework, reading some, you know, official letters, integrating a bit more into society. Just, you know, mm-hmm. it was really just communicating mm-hmm. clearly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not coming in with the, this is what you need to do because I'm in charge and I'm going to tell you. Well, they're not going to listen to that. We're human. Who likes being told what to do, you know? Oh, I love this question because I don't always think about what I do in those terms. And so lately I've been thinking about it a lot because my worlds are converging from all the different things that I do. And so I definitely feel like it is my ability to inspire, facilitate, and build communities, movements, 
through the way that I speak, the way that I'm able to translate big ideas or problems into a language and sort of bridge building that people from different backgrounds, different communities, people who want to build something together, including and especially bridges across their differences. I really think that that's the work I do. And it's been important because I spent 19 years, almost 20 really, working in youth development. And then I all along have been very involved in social justice. Social justice actually led me to ministerial school. And so I still preach um, pretty regularly. And youth development led me into diversity and inclusion education, which is my primary profession at the moment. And so everything kind of converges in this moment. And I'm doing more speaking that's open to the public that has a spiritual activism uh, specialty around this diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity work. So mm. that was a big answer, mm-hmm. um, but it's really all about, you know, sort of how I got to understanding what my particular gift is to the world. Right, right, right. So I'm curious about, like you said, it's a big, big, big answer. So I'm curious about how you mentioned that it was your youth development that led you into the ministerial study and work. So tell us more about that. Like, what about it? Like, how did that come about? Yeah. So um, I worked in youth development since I was in high school. And over time, I did arts and community development. I did work that was specific to girls. And then I got into working with Black youth specifically in Oakland. And in that time, I worked with a lot of youth who had experienced trauma. So I worked with sexually exploited girls. I worked in juvenile detention facilities. I worked with youth that were queer and homeless. So the intersection of a lot of things. I also worked with, you know, Black communities who really wanted their children to have a clear sense of their own culture, history, and identity. And in that work, I started out working directly with the students. And over time, I started training schools and I started training nonprofit staff. Then the next level was training leaders and training people in city government and then ultimately foundation principals and executives. And what I found is the higher I got up the ladder, the more I had to explain just basic identity principles around Mm. what it is to be low income, what it is to be queer, what it is to be black. Um, Because people didn't, if you don't understand racism, you can't serve Black kids. Mm. The the Mm -hmm. organization that I ran for six years, Leadership Excellence, also had a very explicit social justice uh, component. They're now called Flourish Agenda. And so in that, I'm talking to leaders, explaining to them why social justice is important. When I left that job, within six months, Oscar Grant was killed in Oakland. And I became one of the architects of that movement. So I was very, very involved in the leadership. And at a certain point, I began to raise the question of the tactics that we were using. And if some of those tactics really co-created the world we didn't want. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a crisis point for me where some folks threw red paint on a woman from the BART board. And they said, the blood is on your hands. And at that moment, I knew that these weren't tactics that were a part of my mission. 
And so I went to ministerial school because I had always been unapologetically black centered, but I wanted to be unapologetically spiritually centered. And I began to practice what I call spiritual activism. And it is an activism that is firmly rooted in the vision and the goal. So if you don't have an idea of what peace is to you, of what justice Mm. is to you, of how love intersects in your practice, right, then it's it's hard for you to actually practice real revolution. And and even, you know, Asada Shakur says the goal of revolution is peace. And certainly we have to use other tactics, but we can't forget that that's what the goal is. Angela Davis was working on prison abolition. And when we called for the imprisonment of some of the officers, some people from the abolitionist movement pushed back on us and they said, we can't support prison for anyone. And that was just a radicalizing moment for me. So I went to ministerial school, became a minister and started with this thing that one of my teachers, Reverend Deborah Johnson, called the fire triangle. And it's the acknowledgement that every fire needs uh, heat, fuel, and oxygen. That heat is our often our anger, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't apologize for that anger. It's the catalyst. It's the, you know, uh, there was a march that I led. And at the end of it, the anarchists started burning cars. And I was initially really upset about it. And I condemned it. And one of them sat and talked to me at one point. And they said, let me tell you something. If we hadn't burnt up cars, you would have never been on CNN. And that made me really sad because I knew it was true. When people say, well, why are you so upset about this when you're not upset about, you know, black on black violence? And I was like, this is not true. We have been having gang truces and peace marches for in all the 20 years that I worked in Oakland. But there was no coverage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was never coverage. No one right. came. No one cared that we had been doing that work in our community that whole time. But when people, anarchists, burned up cars, then everybody brought their cameras and their microphones. And that made me sad. But I began to understand that anger is a part of social change. And it always has been. Mm-hmm. You know, Stonewall riots, whatever it is, it's a catalyst. But it's not sustainable. And that's where we need the fuel. And that has to do with self-care for activists. It has to do with community building. It has to do with resources. But a friend of mine likes to say Martin Luther King had a dream, not a complaint. And he wasn't just trying to get off the back of the bus. He was trying, his vision was Black children and white children holding hands. And that was an impossibility during his time. And so that oxygen we refer to as the vision. Right. Like what is something further off in the distance? And so that is a very long answer to how I got into how I started a youth development and got into spiritual activism. Special compilation salon on craft. I feel so grateful to be able to use this platform to, first of all, just talk to and understand more about how folks of the diaspora are living and working abroad and applying their skills and talents in so many innovative ways that are really making an impact on our world. And particularly in this time when we're appreciating and loving on all the women in our lives, I'm just happy to be able to even go into an archive. Having done this podcast now for three years, it's a, it's a great honor. You can continue to catch us with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon. And if you're on any of those platforms or any platform, 
please do like, share, subscribe, and give us a review. It really does help others find great content online. So until next time, bye for now.